Our scripture today is Micah chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it shall be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields." Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest. Because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher to this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Let us today hear the word of the Lord. Friends, our culture increasingly views people. I was thinking about this this week in one of two categories. You're, you're either among the oppressed or you're an oppressor. Either you're a, a good guy divesting yourself of whatever power you have to, to lift up the marginalized or, or you're a bad guy holding on to your power to perpetuate the status quo. From a Christian perspective, from, from the perspective of God's word, there, there are a host of problems with looking at the world that way. Just, let me just mention a few of them. First, there's a, there's a critical sense, think about this, critical sense in which every human being alive belongs in both categories. Okay? Both categories. To, to just take the words we speak, for example. 
So, so who among us has not used our words to hurt other people? I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I would hope all of them would go up. <laughs> We're putting on humility, right? Or, or who among us has not been hurt by the words of other people? It's the first problem. We're in both categories, all of us. Second, human authority is not an intrinsic moral liability that needs to be neutralized or or taken out of commission, okay? It all depends on what you do with it. Do, Do you use the power God has entrusted to you in whatever role he's placed you in for good Or do you use that for evil? It it all depends on what you do with it. And third, please hear this. While scripture categorically condemns human oppression, hear this. Being oppressed does not render anyone righteous in God's sight. All of us have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God, as Paul says. Oppressed people included. We we all deserve to be condemned before, before the judge of all the earth. On account of what? Our collective failure to conform to God's moral standard in act, attitude, or nature. Oppressor and oppressed alike are in that category. People who have oppressed others need a savior and people who have been oppressed by others need a savior. That's important to keep in view as we approach Micah 2, okay? Because the Lord speaks directly in this chapter to Israelites in the second half of the 8th century BC in particular who were using their power to oppress their neighbors, They were committing grievous acts of social injustice, and they thought they could get away with it, as we'll soon see. They thought God wouldn't do anything about it, and the Lord lovingly engages their unbelief in that regard in this chapter. But he does it in a way that that urges all of us to stand in reverential awe of his justice and all of us to cling to his mercy. I think there are some significant dangers to avoid in a passage like this. So I'm trying to lay the groundwork a bit up front, okay? One of them is a false guilt that wrongly assumes I, we, must be culpable in some way of the injustices that are described here. Church, it's not arrogant or a sign of blindness necessarily to evaluate your life in light of God's word and conclude, Lord, by your grace, I don't believe I'm doing what the original recipients of this letter were doing. Okay, that's not arrogant. If that's the case, praise God, friend, right? Maybe the warnings the Lord gives us here compel you, compel us to keep running down the path of ethical righteousness, justice. But here's the other danger, okay, kind of on the other side. 
we can assume, any one of us can do this, including the preacher, okay, that if we're not guilty, if we don't think we're guilty of the particular injustice the Lord condemns here, that we've got nothing to learn and just kind of tune out. Whew, glad I'm not those guys. Okay, phone, you know, no, don't, don't do that, okay? Why not? Because what Micah says here about the character of God and the ways of God applies to all of us at all times, in all places, in all cultures, all the time. Not, none of us, think of it this way, none of us are immune to the unbelief that, that loses sight of God's justice or loses sight of God's mercy. We, we all need the Lord year after year, day after day, to engage our unbelief by teaching us to fear his justice and hope in his mercy. That, that really is the message of Micah too, that the Lord, God Almighty, engages our unbelief, like he did Israel's, to teach us to fear his justice and to hope in his mercy. How does he do that? We're going to look at this in three sections, friends. First, point number one, the Lord will justly punish those who practice oppression. Okay, verses one to five. He'll justly punish those who practice oppression. Or earlier in Micah 1, if you weren't with us last Sunday, that the prophet called out Israel and Judah on account of their, their collective spiritual adultery, their, their unfaithfulness to God. And as chapter two begins, to make the connection here, Micah pivots, as it were, to, to begin explaining what kinds of social injustice was Israel committing as a result of their spiritual unfaithfulness. So, so don't miss this. The, the very structure of the book, chapter one followed by chapter two, spiritual unfaithfulness toward God, followed by social injustice toward men. What does that prove? That the first and second greatest commandments are two sides of the same coin and cannot be separated. What do I mean? that when we're not loving God first and best, we'll inevitably fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. Chapter one leads to chapter two. So, what, so what's Israel doing here? Okay, to dive in. What, what's the sin for which Micah says she's about to be judged? Well, look at verse one. Before he calls it out, he, he reveals this about it, that it's not accidental, unconscious, or, or lingering despite her best attempts to do otherwise. Notice this is not some sort of guilt by association okay, on account of someone's ethnicity or, or economic status. It's personal, it's deliberate, it's intentional. What, what are they doing? They're plotting in the evening and performing in the morning. Deliberately so. They're, they're using their, their power, the, the strength and resources God has entrusted to them to practice wickedness. Look at verse 2. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. Okay, like, like all sin, the problem, nope, it's true for every form of injustice, it starts in the heart, doesn't it? It starts in the heart. To, to covet it is to believe that there is something someone else has 
that I don't, that I need in order to be happy. It's an expression of greed. And, and it's the, the opposite of being content. What, what's contentment? Trusting our generous king that, that even when we don't comprehend his ways or what he's doing or why he's withholding something or giving something else, that the boundary lines have fallen for us in pleasant places because of King Jesus. That's contentment, the opposite of being covetous. And an Israelite king named Ahab, in 1 Kings 21, just to illustrate this, did not make the right choice between coveting or being content. Okay, so he had a neighbor, if you're not familiar with the story, named Naboth. Ahab had a neighbor named Naboth, and, and Naboth had a beautiful vineyard. Ahab wanted it, it was close to his property. He wanted it to grow vegetables, but when he offered to buy it, Naboth refused. No way, king. People didn't do that to Ahab very often. <laughs> and Naboth's response is instructive. 1 Kings 21 verse 3. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Which prompts Ahab to throw a pity party and leads his wife Jezebel to go have Naboth axed so she can give the vineyard to Ahab and he can go back to being a happy man. And I bring that up, friends, because in the eyes of the law, murdering an innocent person like that was a big deal. Killing Naboth was a big deal. But you know what else was a big deal? Taking his land. Big deal to God. Now, Bruce Waltke summarizes this situation well, okay? In, in that agrarian economy, a person's life depended on his fields. And for that reason, his inheritance was carefully safeguarded by the law. It was a sacred trust, not, not just another piece of real estate. If a person lost his fields, at best, he might become a day laborer. At worst, he might become a slave. In either case, he lost his independence, his freedom before God, and became a dependent of the land barons. That, that's exactly what Micah's countrymen were doing. That's what was going on. They, they, were, they were taking other people's houses and fields by force for themselves through oppression and injustice. They, they were robbing their neighbor of the Deuteronomy 4.21, good land that God himself had given them. Notice how verse 2 reminds us in this regard that, that the whole concept of private property is not rooted in selfishness or, or in secular Western capitalism. It's rooted in the wisdom of God. The land barons were taking what God had said belonged to someone else, what God himself had given to men like Naboth. And employers do the same thing today. If they fail to, to pay or, or grossly underpay those who work for them. And employees can do the same thing today if, if, if we cheat on our timesheet. Or, or if we use work hours to get personal projects done. 
coveting social injustice always go hand in hand. But how did the Lord respond? Look at verse 3. What's he do about all this, this mess? Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster. Do you see the parallel with verse 1? Okay, don't miss it. But what are the Israelites doing? Devising wickedness. What is their God doing in response? Devising disaster. It's the exact same two words in Hebrew. What's Micah's point? He's not saying, don't hear this, that that God is repaying their moral evil with some moral evil of his own. He's not saying that. Rather, he's saying God is going to give them exactly what they deserve. They're going to reap what they've sown, in other words. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Mike is reminding us that God's justice is always just. It's a punishment that fits the crime. And his justice is unavoidable. Look at verse 3. Every oppressor will be humbled. You shall not walk haughtily in that day when your land is taken away, for it will be a time of disaster. Notice who's saying that to, to Israel. It's, it's the Lord saying that, right? Friend, the, the Lord is ultimately the one who humbles the proud. Okay, I'm not saying it's, it's wrong for us to contend for justice. Whether in private or in the public square, I, I am saying that, that when we try to do God's job for him, and try through our own power to humble someone else who we feel like is oppressing us, invariably, we end up oppressing them, the very people who have oppressed us. And the cycle continues. Don't try to do God's job for him. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Ever. Ever but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. His immediate response warns those of us who have experienced grievous oppression. Don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. Fear the Lord. Wait for the king. So what kind of disaster will God bring to pass against Israel? Where's this going? Look at verse four. He'll he'll take their land away, the land baron's land away, and give it to foreigners. Presumably a reference to the Assyrians or Babylonians who in a few short years came in and sacked Israel and Judah. In other words, those who seized property from others are going to have their own property seized. But, but that's not the worst consequence. Okay, As devastating as that would have been in an agrarian society, that's not the worst consequence of their injustice. More frightening by far is what the Lord promises will happen in verse 5. Look there. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. 
Notice they're not just losing, about to lose their land, including the the portion the Lord originally gave them. When, When a remnant returns from exile, when the Lord graciously restores his people, what's Micah saying in verse five? Those who practiced oppression will not be numbered among them. They'll have no place in the assembly, no inheritance among the redeemed. And Jesus says the exact same thing will be true on the final day. John 5 verse 28. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Does that mean, friends, that we earn our way into heaven by doing good? No. What is it saying? That a tree is known by its fruit. It's not saying we earn our way into heaven by doing good. Jesus is saying a tree is known by its fruit. In in other words, the people of God do not consist of those who, who merely believe in God. Yeah, I, I agree, he's a thing. Or go to church. Or pay it forward. Who are the people of God? What, what's, who's numbered in the assembly of the Lord? For, friends, it's those who have surrendered their life to King Jesus and, and are obeying him accordingly. Okay, ethical righteousness, obedience to God is mandatory. It's required. That is not works righteousness. That's what scripture says. James 2 verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead. And frankly, just to apply this, sober as it is, it's why maintaining our, our corporate holiness as a church family, not, not, not just through mutual correction in the context of personal relationships, but, but even at the corporate level through church discipline if necessary, it, it, this is why that is so important. So important. Not, not an unfortunate necessity, that of which we do not speak, church discipline. No, it's, it's part of our responsibility. It's critical. Why? Because if, if we tell someone that they can live a life characterized by injustice, okay, given over to unrepentant sin, and still consider themselves part of the assembly of the Lord, we are lying to them. We may be saying what they want to hear. We may be saying what will not offend them, but we are not saying what God says. That's a big deal. And we're functionally giving them a false assurance of salvation, 
which is precisely what Micah's original audience was rolling with. We'll see that in just a second. The Lord, what's his point at the very beginning? The Lord will justly punish those who practice oppression. And if they refuse to repent in this life, that punishment's going to be eternal. So let me warn you, King's Way, okay? You might look successful in the eyes of the world, friend. No less than the the land barons in Micah 2, who had it all. But if you get there, to that success, so to speak, by greed or by injustice, then I, I warn you, friend, you do that, you will suffer total loss in the kingdom of God. Do not gain the world and forfeit your soul. That's a terrible bargain. Fear the Lord, friend. Fear is justice. Sadly, that's not how Israel responded. Point number two. A lack of repentance reveals the danger of false teaching. Lack of repentance reveals the danger of false teaching. Look at verse six. The second section here. Micah said his peace, speaking on God's behalf. Now, now Israel, as it were, is responding to Micah and the Lord speaking through Micah. How do they respond? Matthew's translation, stop it, Micah. Shut up. That's how they responded. We don't want to hear it. You're blowing smoke, man. We're going to unfriend you. (laughs) Don't preach. Thus they preach. Micah, one should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. I hope, I hope you realize that like Satan in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, we functionally say the exact same thing whenever we refuse to walk in the fear of the Lord. Disgrace will not overtake us. We, we, we act. What do we mean by that? We, we act. We make choices. We, we do life as if there are no serious consequences for rejecting the Lord. I mean, what was Israel saying? I mean, besides Micah, listen, man, we know you've got the prophet name tag and all, but God isn't full of wrath. He's patient and loving. I mean, that's his job. Isn't that what God is, love, Micah? He's not going to get impatient with us like you're saying or, or bring all this judgment stuff to pass. Micah, it seems you've forgotten the word of God itself. Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Micah, that's who God says he is. What's this God you're talking about? Shut up. Is that true, friend? Is the Lord merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love? Yes. It's not a trick question. 
gloriously so. Unless that's true, we have no hope. But what else is equally true? The very next verse. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Exodus 22, 22 to 24 is even more specific. Listen, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, says the Lord, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. What do we do with that? We humbly remember that God isn't more merciful than he is just. And he's not just on the outside, but merciful at the core. Our God is what? Infinitely just and infinitely merciful. Exact same time, all the time. And we might pick and choose, but God does not jettison parts of himself based on which parts we like or are more cool with. The moment we emphasize one of his attributes to the neglect of the other is the moment we create a God of our own making church. A God who looks strangely a lot like who? Us. And I linger here because this is where so much false teaching, even in our own day, starts. Okay? Listen carefully. It usually, false teaching, false doctrine, usually doesn't start by just saying something, asserting something that's categorically untrue. Usually, false teaching starts by, by just presenting a, a selective portrait. You following with me? False teaching starts by, by emphasizing one thing that is true about God, but neglecting other things. It starts with pick and choose. Create your own God. For example, let me illustrate this. Does Genesis 2 teach us that God created our physical bodies? Sexual desires included. Does it teach that? Yes. But does that mean whatever I feel like doing must be good? No, it does not because Romans 1 teaches that, that all our desires, physical desires, sexual desires included, regardless of your perceived orientation, have all been corrupted by sin. Or how about this example? Does Luke 6.38 say, with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you? Yes, it does. But does that mean the more money you give God, the more cash he'll give you? No. Why not? Because God also says in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and money. Do you see what's going on? If you, if you dig into 
the start of almost any kind of false teaching or false doctrine in our own day, you will find a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth. Almost without fail. Why? Because the pride in our hearts loves to exchange who God says he is for who we want him to be. (laughs) We just instinctively do that. Because then we have a God who doesn't get in our business. (laughs) Right? Let's be honest. Then we have a God who parks himself on the sidelines with the cheerleaders. He'll he'll fix our problems whenever we run over to him with our our fears and our anxieties. He, He affirms our felt needs all the time. He never gets in the way. He stays out of the way. But the problem, of course, is that that God doesn't actually exist. He's not real. He's a creature of our own imagination. He's an idol, the real God, the true God who reveals himself to us on the pages of his word. Says what? Look at verse 7. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? That's what the real God says. Mike isn't talking about salvation by works. He's talking about the obedience of faith, Kingsway. Only those who obey God's word. Starting with his command in the word to do what? To turn away from sin and turn toward trusting and obeying, following Jesus. Only those who do that will experience God's eternal favor and blessing. That's what God's word says. Mike isn't saying here in verse 7, we earn God's blessing through ethical righteousness. He's saying the path of ethical righteousness, including a lifestyle of treating people with integrity and justice, is the only path of spiritual blessing. There is no other. Israel's problem, in other words, and I would argue our problem today, so many situations, is that we want the covenant blessings without the covenant responsibilities. We, we, we really sing the same tune they are in Micah 2. Whenever we quiet our conscience at the, at the doorstep of intentional sin by saying to ourselves, I know I shouldn't do that, but if I do at least God will forgive me. Same attitude. Same mindset. We, we presume upon the mercy of the Lord. Just like they did. We, we forget that Luke one fifty says, what does Jesus say in Luke? Well, it's actually Mary, the Magnificat. What does she say in Luke one fifty? His mercy is for those who fear him. Not those who earn it, but those who fear him. Those who turn away from sin and toward Jesus, toward trusting, following, obeying him and say, King Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's who receives mercy. Not not those who presume upon it or just say, God, I know, I'm good. Like, you do love, that's your thing. Israel, in other words, didn't fear the Lord. (laughs) Bottom line. And because of that, they they just kept stealing from the unsuspecting people who trusted them to line their own pockets. But look at verse 8. God took this very personally. 
the victims here, verse eight, are not just women. They're God's people. Do you see that? They're, they're not just young children. They're what? They're children to whom the Lord gave dignity and splendor. In other words, by, by oppressing their neighbors, they were assaulting the one whose image they bore. Just like Victor prayed earlier, that the Lord so identifies not just here, but in all of scripture with the weak, the vulnerable, that to attack them is to attack him. Remember that Christian. When you experience injustice, you're not alone. You're not the only one who's being attacked in that moment. Your your oppressor is ultimately raging against the Lord. You're not alone. And so in verse 10, look there, Micah resolutely points Israel toward her inevitable end. What's that? Exile. Arise and go. For this place, the promised land, is no no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. Sin that destroys with a grievous destruction. Notice, friend, that unrepentant sin, that's what's going on here, isn't just unfortunate or unwise or, or problematic or, yeah, I guess I should work on that. No, it's spiritually and physically destructive. It, it destroys our relationship with God, unrepentant sin. It, it destroys our relationship with one another. And lest we repent, it will eventually destroy your soul in hell. Now, as I say this, please know we do not want to be a sin-focused or sin-centered church. We want to be a Christ-focused, a Christ-centered church. But do not pit talking about sin against talking about Christ. Why not? Because a Christ-focused, Christ-centered church follows our victorious, sin-conquering king in waging war against the great enemy of our souls. That's what a Christ-centered church does. So, so we don't tolerate sin or toy with sin or, or settle with sin. We, we put it to death, Kingsway. You put it to death, brother or sister. You kill it through the power of the Spirit lest it succeed in destroying you and all the people around you. In verse 11, Micah concludes with with really a stinging indictment. He is deliberately saying something he knows will offend them. Not for the sake of being offensive, but because it's true. They need to hear it. He says, the reason, Israel, you're rejecting my words isn't because you don't like preaching. It's because you only like preachers who tell you what you want to hear. That the kind of preachers you like, Israel, are are men who utter wind and lies. Who, when you're gathered with them, all they talk about is the finer points of winemaking and cocktail recipes. They don't tell you. They're not telling you. They're not imploring you to abandon the pursuit of physical pleasure as the goal of your life because Jesus is better. 
They're not saying that. They're providing suggestions for enjoying your best life now. They help you feel more positive, more upbeat, more confident in you, and that no matter what, God will always love you, period. They don't speak of sin, righteousness, judgment, or leave you through their preaching more aware of your need for mercy and more grateful for the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. They don't do that. They're windbags. They're lying. Kingsway, wait, may we, may we never gather in this room to hear easy words. Do not come on Sunday morning looking for easy words. May we always gather. May the men who occupy this pulpit long after I'm dead always gather. To exhort you and encourage you and warn you and comfort you on the authority of God's word to tend well to the condition of your soul and to hold fast to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and to live it accordingly. Always, false teaching says, don't worry about repentance. Micah urges us to recognize how much we need God to rescue us from ourselves. <laughs> Amen. And to cry out to God for mercy. Point number three, we'll conclude with this. The mercy of God, why should we cry out to him for mercy when we feel our need to be rescued from ourselves? Because the mercy of God triumphs over the stubborn unrepentance of man. Verses 12 to 13. I need juice. <laughs> we have to hear this. And in verses 1 to 11, the prophet engages the unbelief that would ignore or downplay our accountability to God by teaching us to fear his justice. First 11 verses. But if you're familiar with Israel's story, you, you know, you will know that no matter how many times God warned her, no matter how many times in one of the prophets she got a functional equivalent of Micah 2, 1 through 11, <laughs> even after the suffering of the exile, she just continued to go her own way, right? Injustice remained. Her, her story sadly, is our story, you know? I mean, can, can you relate to this? Can you relate, friend, to her utter inability to make herself repent? Can you relate to that? Can, can, can you relate to her utter inability to, to make herself turn toward the Lord instead of away from him? Can, can you relate to that? 
frankly, it's what makes the promise in verse 12 just all the more amazing. Look there. God says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. What is Yahweh saying? That in the midst of doing justice, there's something else he's going to do that is just as true of his eternal character. What's that? He's going to show mercy. Not, not just a little mercy or a appetizer at Costco taste of mercy, but a triumphant overcoming mercy that does for Israel what, what she couldn't do for herself. What, what, what is the language of I will assemble, I will gather, I will set describe? It, it's the work of a good shepherd, right? His justice scatters them to the nations. His mercy reunites a remnant that they might be a people for his own possession. What does the fold represent for a sheep? It's a place of protection. What's, what's the pasture of which the Lord speaks represent? Place of provision. You, you realize, Kingsway, in Jesus, we find both those things. Protection, provision. John 10, verse 14 Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He's the good shepherd. When when Jesus came to earth to live our life and die our death, he, he fulfilled the Lord's promise right here in Micah 2 verse 12 to protect and provide for God's people. It's what he did. He, 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 how so? He protects us from the condemnation we deserve. He dies so we wouldn't have to die. And he provides for us through the power of the spirit, uniting us to himself such that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, talk about our provision, becomes yours in Christ Jesus. Left to ourselves, we do Israel. We, we refuse to assemble together as a people holy to the Lord. So what does the Lord do? Oh, well, Enjoy your chosen outcome. No, what does he do? He, he brings it to pass himself. See, he pursues, he assembles, he gathers. He, he makes us part of his chosen covenant people. Were, were he not a faithful shepherd, in other words, there would be no people of God. That's Micah's point. But because he is sovereign in salvation, because his power together is greater than our power to scatter, his glorious purpose prevails. So where we are trapped in our sin, our unrepentance. Just like Israel in a besieged city. What does King Jesus do? He breaks us out. Look at verse 13. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate Going out by it. Jesus is not a passive shepherd playing a harp somewhere. He is a warrior king, king's way. And King David uses the same language in 2 Samuel 5.20 to describe the victory the Lord gave him over the Philistines. Listen, and he said, the Lord has what? Broken through my enemies. 
broken through before me like a breaking flood. You've ever seen pictures after Katrina of floodwaters just breaking through things, crashing through stuff? Like nothing could stand in the way. That's exactly what Jesus does, friends. Through through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he he makes a way where there was no way. He, He rescues us from the clutches of the world. The flesh, the devil, enemies that were, were too strong for us. And we follow him into a land of, of freedom and deliverance and salvation. And notice in verse 13, he doesn't do his redemption thing. And then, okay, we've kind of got that wrapped up. I hope you guys are grateful. Now walk that way. Good luck. Go. <laughs> no, what does he do? What's verse 13 say? He goes up before them. Their king passes on before them. He he remains with us. Thank you, Lord, leading us, guiding us, bringing us safely home. The gospel doesn't give you a spiritual bag of survival goodies and then cut you loose to hopefully make the cut. The spirit unites you to Christ. He's a faithful shepherd who's going to bring you safely home. We have to choose to follow him, right? We have to exchange the city of man for the city of God, but, but our shepherd king is the one who brings it to pass. That's Micah's point. The mercy of God triumphs over the stubbornness of man. Always. Micah begins this chapter by warning God's people to fear his justice. He ends the chapter by urging the same people to hope in his mercy. And friend, whether you think of yourself as someone who has been oppressed or oppressed others, we, we need to hold fast to both, okay? That's the main message of Micah. So what does God's justice do? His justice warns us to not take advantage of vulnerable members of our society and to look to him for vindication when other people hurt us. What's his mercy do? It compels us to turn to the Lord even after years of embracing lies about who he is. It doesn't matter how long you failed to repent, friend. Know this, it is never too late to trust God's power to save. Because Jesus stands ready and Jesus stands willing. He he remains faithful where we're unfaithful, even where you have doubted him, even where you have refused to turn to him, even where you've refused to believe in him and his perfect justice or his mercy. He patiently, graciously, persistently, through his word, through Micah 2, engages our unbelief, teaching us to fear his justice, hope in his mercy. Let's be that people. Father, that's who we want to be. (laughs) We want to be a people that stand in reverent awe of your justice. And a people who put all our hope in your mercy. Jesus, thank you that you are gloriously both of those things. And because of that, we can call upon you as our Savior. 
Lord, make us a church that fears you in a life-giving kind of way that sends us running toward you, not away from you. Because we know that in you, in the true fear of the Lord, we will find mercy. Give us that faith, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.